Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Now, this is going to be a very serious episode to make up for the silliness that was the last episode of Dead Bodies Podcast. Hi, good evening. Good evening. My name's Didi Dunleavy. Hello, I'm Chanel Vella. No and poo. Don't, don't. That was silly. That was, it was. I don't know why, but it became hysterical. Blah, got blah, crazy blah, blah. last week. <clears throat> I've got something horrendous to tell you about oh. tonight involving not one dead body, but I think there were 915 Dead bodies, yes. Uh, And they had all died within an hour and a half of each other. This was the horror of Jonestown. Have you ever heard about it? No. The People's Temple, I think it was called. Mm. Why don't I know about this? Hideous. Okay. Because it probably happened, what year were you born? 1988. Yeah, it happened 10 years before you were born. Okay, Um, hit me. November 18, 1978. So the People's Temple was a, well, it was a cult. And these people were all following this man called the Reverend Jim Jones. I don't know, Reverend of what, self-styled Reverend. Mm. Um, And these people all committed suicide by drinking cyanide. It was the largest single loss of American civilian life in a non-natural disaster until 9-11 happened. Right. I want to just credit a couple of sources that I read to put this together. Uh, there's a website, and we'll put the link for this up on our Facebook page, jonestown.sdsu.edu. It's a website with lots of information about Jonestown. Uh, they say their aim is to remember those who died and those who survived in order to respect their lives and humanise their deaths. And also there was a book called The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by an investigative journalist called Jeff Gwynn, I think it is, G-U-I-N, and uh, The Ghosts of November, Memoirs of an Outsider Who Witnessed the Carnage at Jonestown, Guyana. This one was written by the senior medic of the the Joint Humanitarian Task Force that was sent in by the State Department to Guyana. I hope I'm saying the name of the country correctly, to retrieve the bodies and repatriate them. So these people were Americans that had gone to live in Guyana mm. and all their bodies had to be brought home. So that's – I want to sort of concentrate not so much on the story itself but how they got the bodies back again. Um, just to give you a bit of background, the People's Temple was started in California by Jim Jones. He was um, some, charismatic, so he was able to attract people, somehow get their loyalty. Uh, he made them believe that he was the only one that could solve their problems. Mm, there's that and charming element again. Definitely, and that he could somehow help them create a better life. He had them believe that anyone that was not part of their group was an enemy, and he alienated them as much as he could from their family um, and friends, anyone outside of, of the People's Temple and from the media. And he told people, uh, his people that America was facing threats of martial law, concentration camps and nuclear war. This is in the 1970s, which it wasn't. Um, he used drugs, sex and intimidation to maintain power over them. When people in America started to ask questions about what he was doing, he moved all of his followers to this farm in the jungle in Guyana. It's a different time Am I saying it correctly? Well. Guyana? Guyana. Guyana. Mm. Um, anyway, this farm that they, he set up was so remote that even if one of them had wanted to leave, it would have been almost impossible for them 
That's to get out. It's a different time. No, no phones, no internet, nothing. Exactly, yeah. And then you know, just logistically, it was a long way from anywhere. The US government heard that people there were being held prisoner because some people did want to leave, but they couldn't. Um, so the US government sent in a congressman by the name of Leo Ryan and a group of journalists to Jonestown to investigate what was going on there. They arrived on the day before the massacre, the mass suicide, and they met some of the residents there. They were given dinner. They were given a show. Oh, look what a lovely time we're having here. Everything's fine. Nothing to see. Nothing to see here, exactly. Put up a red flag if you like, Chanel. Red flag. It was the next day out of 900 people there, only 15 asked to leave with the congressman and the journalist. They wanted to get out. Um, So Congressman Leo Ryan and the journalists were taken to the airstrip at Port Katuma, Port Katuma, I think it was called, but they never actually made it out. So Jones, Jim Jones, had them executed before they reached their plane. Oh. And he told his people in the People's Temple that Ryan had died and he convinced them all that the government was coming in to slaughter every one of them and lead the children into slavery. He said the only thing to do was to commit a revolutionary act and um, he brought out a poison drink. So he had mixed cyanide into Kool-Aid, huge, big things of it. Just like right? Yeah, Mm. yep. He told them it would be a peaceful crossing over. So Definitely wouldn't be. No. So mother, I mean, there were children and babies as well in this place. The mothers started with the children and the toddlers and the babies first. They were injecting cyanide into their mouths. Mm. Any adults who were reluctant to take the poison were forced to do so at gunpoint. Some who refused were held down and forcibly fed the cyanide. Mm. So within two and a half hours, more than 913 people were dead. Odell Rhodes is one of the few people who survived and he somehow walked from Jonestown to Port Katuma where he alerted the authorities. So the Guyanese military officer Desmond Roberts, he led some troops into Jonestown and apparently there was a very heavy fog on the day that they were going in and the soldiers were were walking, they were on foot and the fog was so heavy they tripped over what they thought were logs. Bodies. And exactly as the fog lifted they realised what it actually was. They were sort of waving the fog away and the soldiers just started screaming because they saw what was on the ground in front of them. When they first saw the scene, they thought that it was about 300 people dead, but what had happened was there had been big pits dug, so they were able to count sort of top layer of people, but in these pits they'd put that killed the babies first, put them at the bottom, then killed the toddlers and put them on top. So there were layers and layers of people. So it was actually a few days before they were able to establish how many oh. people they were because they were down all down in layers on this pit. Um, Jeff Braley was the man who led the recovery team and he said, nothing in our combined experience could prepare us for the shocking hell of Jonestown. And he was actually quite an experienced military man. And to be shocked by what he saw there, it just tells you how unbelievable it must have been. Um, He said, flying in, it was difficult to make out the individual bodies. I actually remember seeing this on the news, 1978. What was I, about 16 years old? Um, They did show some pictures on the TV news at the time. Mm. I think we were still in black and white here in Australia. Gosh, you couldn't show anything now. Well... They showed because a lot of the bodies were face down. And I can remember thinking, why are they all so fat? 
Oh, bloated? Exactly. And in jungle conditions, the bodies, by the time Humidity. they got into this point, by the time it passed and by the time pictures were taken, the bodies had bloated so dramatically. Oh. And I think they just sort of showed the legs you or the feet. You would not even or... be able to show that now. I don't know. The pictures are freely available on the internet and we'll post – we'll be thoughtful. Not thoughtful. What's the word? You know, we'll try Respectful. and not make you sick on our Facebook Couldn't even page. show a foot now. Hmm. Um, from about 150 feet up, Jeff Braley said they thought they were looking at piles of rubbish, but it, when they got closer, they saw that it was just masses of bodies in multicoloured clo- clothing. Obviously, it was tropical conditions, so they were uh. all in these bright, happy clothing. Uh, they were bloated because it was tr- sweltering heat. Apparently, the heat was just unbelievable. And by the time the recovery team got in, they'd been there for three days at that point. Um one ma- man was found lying on the floor with a pad and pencil in his hands and it looked like he'd taken the poison but then started writing what was happening to him as oh. as the poison was taking effect. And so after, th- I think, three paragraphs he got out, then just the writing became illegible. They couldn't make out what he was saying. Uh, Jim Jones' body was found lying on the steps of his home. Now, his arms were outstretched and his eyes were wide open. There were some marks on the ground that made it look as though he'd actually been dragged about 20 feet, they said, to where he was. And there was a bullet hole on the side of his forehead. There was very little blood around the hole. So I'm not actually clear in the end whether he was probably murdered or whether he killed himself. Yeah, but then who moved the body? Um so Jeff Braley said, I didn't move the body, but I didn't notice any sign of an exit wound. I don't particularly remember seeing a pool of blood on the ground from where the body was removed. I specifically looked for powder burns or residue around the entrance wound. There was none. This indicated to me that Jones had been murdered and did not commit suicide. Because the gun would have been held yeah. right to his head, so the skin would have been burnt there? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about, enough about forensics. Forensics uh, Inside uh, Jones's home in the compound, lying in front of an empty empty safe was a dead woman. She was also shot through the mouth. Her name was Anne Moore. She was the nurse that um, lived lived there. On a bed in a room to the right was another dead woman. She lay on her back and the front of her blouse had a good deal of dried blood on it. But um, Jeff Bailey said he didn't notice any apparent wounds. He thought that that woman was Maria Katsaris, who was Jim Jones's mistress. There were two little boys lying on the floor of Jones's cottage, uh, Chemo and John John. They'd both been fathered by Jones. Identifying all of these people was just a horrific task and quite a, a massive one. So in the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology's oral history program, an oral surgeon by the name of Colonel Kenton Hartman It's a good name for a colonel, isn't it? Kenton Hartman. He stated those 913 sets of remains deteriorated very rapidly in the tropical climate. They were just in an unbelievable degenerative condition. He said in a period of one week, some remains had completely skeletonized. You could take a skull, for example, and just literally wipe the flesh right off it. Oh. It had turned, the flesh had turned into a paste-like compound. It looked like mud. The odour, he said, was just horrendous. There was no way to control it. People working with this disaster not only had an overwhelming psychological difficulty of facing that many dead people, but the condition of the remains was just horrific for them. Uh, There were maggots crawling out of the bodies and out of frustration, some of them 
through slaked lime onto the body, which I slaked lime I think probably means the lime powder, but they had to put a stop to them doing that because they needed to do full body x-rays on one of the bodies as well as dental x-rays on every set of remains. Yeah, and if you put slaked lime, apparently it wipes out the radiographic image, so it, it, they weren't able to do it anymore. So they just had to basically live with the smell. Some of them took fuel from the diesel engines. They poured that over the bodies to try and keep the maggot population down, but nothing worked. Um, eventually, they just became conditioned to it after a couple of days, and um, they were able to complete the operation. Odell Rhodes, that survivor who had raised the alarm, what a guy. He actually returned to help identify some of the bodies. Oh. Uh, Jonestown was divided into grids and the bodies found in each were individually numbered in each section and catalogued and tagged. Now, in wartime, they can usually use a soldier's ID tag right. to uh, provide proof of identity, but they just didn't know where to start from. Um, if there's a plane crash or a natural disaster, sometimes people will have a wallet or some sort of ID on them, but these people just had absolutely nothing. And to make things more difficult, they'd all swapped clothing. They made their own clothing. Uh. They had clothing labels sewn in, but people were wearing other people's clothing, so they couldn't even use that to identify them. In fact, the skin colour, they said a lot of the victims had, they turned blue-black, so they couldn't even tell the race of some of them. Many of the babies and the children were never identified. They're now in a mass grave in a plot at the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. Oh, look, that's, oh, it's honestly so gross. They, he went on to describe in quite detail how they – just the difficulty of picking up those bodies. Oh, they because, were falling apart. Exactly. Yeah, they, it was so hard. If they would pick up their head and their limbs, they would fall apart as they lifted them into the body bags. So in the end, they had to just get – snow shovels to try and clean them up that way. Yeah. Um, so they loaded as much as they could onto a flatbed trailer. A tractor then pulled that into an adjoining soccer field. They were loaded onto military aircraft. They were flown 150 miles to Tim Harry Airport. They were placed in aluminium coffins and taken to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware back in the U.S., a little bit of humour comes. Again, this is something we find often when there's horrific things happen. Mm. The people involved do find some way of having humour. So the crew chief apparently was afraid of the dead and he had to fly the helicopter. So they actually loaded a body bag with a living, breathing soldier onto his helicopter. And once the bag was on the deck of the aircraft, they wriggled around. <laughs> <laughs> just to terrify him. Uh, <laughs> but that is how people cope with such horrific trauma. Apparently can you imagine? Like no a one little can girl. ever imagine. No. Yeah. So to conclude, Jeff Bailey said, the entire time I spent in Guyana seemed like a sick, surreal dream. The stress and unrealness of the past week was compressed within my brain and I lost all concept of time or the division of days. The memory of my experience and what I witnessed in Jonestown continues to be a painful event even 30 years after the event. Incredible, huh? Horrible. Mm. Let's go to feedback. Okay. Because that was horrific. If you thought we weren't serious on the last episode, you really got a dose of reality on this Ooh-wee. one. Right okay. It's so on feedback from Elise on our Facebook page. Hi, Elise. Thanks for getting in touch. Elise is my middle name. Is it? Hmm. Chanel Elise Villa. Mm. Oh, that's pretty. It's got lots mm. of little, 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 little in it. She says, hello, nice things. My middle name's Leslie. Leslie. And my actual name is Diane. I was christened Diane and my maiden name was Nichols. Diane Leslie Nichols. Bit murdery. Is it? Could be. Hmm. 
Anyway, Elise says she loves our podcast. Thanks, Elise. Nice thing, nice things. Thanks. What else um, nice did she say? I thought I would share. Oh, she just says she looks forward to it every week, but whatever. Oh, God, Elise, <laughs> please <know>. stop. <laughs> stop it. Leave it Embarrassing I us. To smash those one stars down. Anyway, I thought I would share my vague knowledge about how dead bodies are managed in Cuba, oh. as it may be of interest. Oh. My mother's ex-husband used to talk about how it is tradition to have two burials for the dead in Cuba. Two burials. How does that work? Well, he had to bury his mother in a grave with other bodies first. What? Yeah, which essentially sounds like, she says, they were waiting for the bodies to rot. Oh. As the eldest son, he was then required to come back to the grave two or three years later clean and wash her bones, and then put her in another smaller box and rebury her. I, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to be judgmental of traditions. That's the way they do it. It's... Not my cup of tea. Understandably, this was a very emotional and difficult time for him. Yeah. I can't imagine going back to a loved one's grave, having That's to wash mother. whatever remains and seeing the state they would be in. That said, I'd be terribly curious if the bones were unknown to me. Apparently, you can pay someone to wash the bones for you and rebury if the family doesn't want to do it. I hope this is of interest. Well, it's actually very sensible because if you're not into cremation, then at least it's a preservation of the body, but not in a way that takes up huge areas of lovely real estate, Still usually low. in the middle of the city. Still. My friends and I in Frankston used to say uh, that the cemetery was the dead centre of Frankston. Oh, dead centre. And I thought they meant that it was actually like the middle. <laughs> you didn't get the pun. No, I didn't get it. She also has a guess at my dead body spot. And she oh. says, also my guess for where Chanel may hide a dead body is to slowly feed the cut-up bits to her dogs. I'm sure they will happily munch on a thigh bone reference from another episode. I think we would find the thigh bone in the garden. I know. I do have three dogs now at the moment because I took one in. I took in the sister of one of my dogs. Oh, you've got three so now. No, I've got three. So I'm a crazy dog person, but one's being shift off, shipped off to dad, but they are always hungry. So good guess, but not right. Okay. That would be a good story, though, if I did do that. No, because you would be caught. The first the thing you would, would do eat that up, would be to go. As a journalist, what's the dog's name? Give me one of them. Barry. What's Barry chewing on back there? And we would go. Hang on a minute. That's about the height of Nicholas's thigh bone. Barry's a really dumb dog too, so he'd look yeah. really dumb. He'd bring it to me. He'd go. Here you are. Yeah. He what would. you thought was going to happen has happened. Here's the evidence right here. Okay. Now we have an email from Lila. And she says this email isn't about seeing a dead body, unfortunately, but just wanted to tell you a little about the tradition within Bosnian deaths. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about this. Mm -hmm. She says, so when I was younger, I asked mum what happens when we die compared to Christians with caskets and so forth. She went on to tell me that if I was to die, I would be undressed by my mother. She has in capital letters. Because you don't, you don't want your mother undressing you when you're grown up. No, you don't. Although. It's Rudy Nudy. 
I think when I gave birth, I was like, just whatever. I honestly didn't care. My mother hadn't seen my downstairs area since oh, I when was you were a having your children. little girl. But when you're having a baby, honestly, it's like it's like the middle of the city down there. It's yeah. like it's a main road. Just anyone, in you come. There were doctors yeah. coming in and out. I didn't care. No. So mum saw everything down there. She Which, fainted while I was giving birth. It was really distracting. Oh. I had been in labour for 32 hours and mum was very tired. And I, did, I didn't stop to think about her because it was all about me. Yeah. And um then and she was there and then she wasn't there and I'm like lean, leaning up going, Where's where is my mum? And she was on the floor. Well this happened to me. I haven't given birth, obviously. You fainted? Well, I had to get a mole cut out. Yeah. Recently. Uh three months ago, let's yeah. say. Had to get a mole cut out, took my sister for moral support, and he puts the local in, which kind of hurt to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I could feel him cutting me. It didn't hurt. Oh, that's horrible. Have you ever had one done near your ear? I no. had one done here next to and you and it was all numb. Well I could but I could hear it. Well I next could to my feel ear. him and he was really it wasn't like a it wasn't a neat cut. I could feel him really like he was cutting open steak. He was really jab, cutting jab, jab. me. And then my sister goes, I don't feel good. Like that. <gasps> and I saw she dropped to the ground and feet came up in the air because I was lying on a bed. <laughs> so these feet came up next to me and I was like, oh, don't you do that. This is me. <laughs> this is me right now. I'm the one being cut open and I had to take her into another room. Oh. So there was my moral support gone. It's not about you. I oh, know. friend of mine giving birth, having a cesarean yeah. and her husband was there. He's a bit of a klutz and a bit of a jokester, whatever. And they put, the, they must put some sort of a screen so that you, they, when you're yeah. the mother, so you're sort of frozen from the waist so you down. You can't see what's happening down there. Exactly. But he took it upon himself to describe everything the doctor was doing. Oh, and Dale, they're so, cutting you now. Baby's yeah, out. He's got big scissors and he he's was. aimed right for you, JJ. He was doing all of it. Well, it's above there. They cut above there and baby's out. Baby's out. Well done, Dale. It's, oh my, I don't know what he's done now, but I think he's taken your liver out. It was it was the placenta, as it turns out. <laughs> I don't know what he's done. I think it's he's a bit of unnecessary panic. Anyway, back to Lila. Okay. Okay, serious. So when I was younger, I asked mum what happens when we die compared to Christians with caskets and so forth. She went on to tell me that if I was to die, I would be undressed by my mother and siblings and siblings bathed and weirdly we aren't clothed. We are wrapped in cotton cloth and placed not in a coffin, but in something that has wood on the bottom and a certain kind of fabric on top. Looks like a swag, but only just big enough to fit uh, a body in. She said she was absolutely mortified by this thought. I think this is good, though, Lila. I'm happy with that. Remember I said I'm happy to be buried naked I or think... in something from Kmart? Like, don't waste good stuff. I think this is similar to Muslim burials. I don't think they have caskets. I could be wrong. Right in. They're so um, neat. Really? No, there? there's probably not. Uh, she says, so now I'm literally scared to die because <laughs> I don't want that to happen. We also don't have wills or anything like that. We just mm, get chucked into the ground. That's That complicates things. I hope I get will. to say what happens to me. She says, also, my girlfriend wants to get into some kind of field in the crime industry that doesn't involve much uni, and I don't know what to choose. She loves creepy stuff, so something that would be amazing. Have any ideas for her? Become a journo. Well, that's something, isn't it? She could be a cop. I think, oh no, she ended up doing uni as well. I think she started doing some work with the police, like kind of book work and stuff, and then she worked her way through. She was mm. interested in crime and and worked her way in that way. But I think you have to do a bit of uni at some stage, don't you? Could be a crime scene cleaner. 
go to the police academy, see what they've got for you. Well, I think being a cop good. What? Well, what did I say? <laughs> something. Something <laughs> unintelligible. I, I had a what? What? My brain didn't work then. <laughs> I think being a cop is a lovely career. I think it's wonderful. I wanted my son to mm. be one, but he has chosen to have an, a never-ending gap year. Now she says, love your podcast. It's Thanks. the only one I've ever listened to as I'm a newbie and I binge listened to it since 7am yesterday and I've sadly reached the end of the episode's can't wait until the next one. Well, Thank you, here's Lila. one for you. Lila, there's some very good podcasts going around. No, there's Did, not. Just yes. this one. Oh, stop it. Did you listen to Teacher's Pet? That was yeah. massive. Yeah. Huge. There's really some good, good ones. I've, yeah. She'll find I all want the to be ones. a journal like that, but I'm just here laughing about all sorts of different <laughs> non-professional things. We'd like to hear your feedback too. You know you can find us on our Facebook page. I love our Facebook page. Facebook page is great. Thank you, Instagram, everyone who joins Twitter, in. Rate us on iTunes, but only no. if you like us. <laughs> Please do. If you don't, don't, email us and tell us that you don't like us. Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.